This is The Channel, a podcast from the International Institute for Asian Studies. I am Baromita Bao, and I am chief editor of the newsletter. The International Institute for Asian Studies celebrates its 30th anniversary on October 13, 2023. This episode of the channel is part of that celebration. In today's episode, I interview the guest editors of the newsletter's regional pages. The newsletter is a free academic periodical produced three times a year in print and online, and it is the most widely read publication of its kind in Asian studies. It offers authors and readers a critical forum in which to discuss and think about Asia. The regional pages of the newsletter provide news from our regional partners in Singapore, Shanghai, Seoul and Melbourne. Our guests introduce themselves and their institutions at the beginning of our conversation and in what follows we proceed to talk about our partnership, curating collections and the different views of Asia in their respective institutes. This is, in fact, the first time that we are all meeting each other, even though it is an online meeting. And so to begin, could you introduce yourselves as scholars and also the institutions you represent in your capacity as guest editors and coordinators for our regional partner sections for the newsletter here at IAAS? Terence, would you perhaps like to start? Sure, sure, Parameter. Thanks, thanks for the invitation. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm Terence. I'm a sociologist by training. And I'm also a director of research at the ICS Yusuf Ishaq Institute. Um, my area of interest is religion. Um, I look at um, a bit of Islam in political Islam in Southeast Asia, but primarily um, the growth of um, Christianity in, in the region as well. Uh, the growth of independent Pentecostal churches in urban centers in Southeast Asia, or what's better known as mega churches and um, how they influence um, the local landscapes and their relationships with um, other faith communities um, in, in the region. Um, so, yeah, I, I was uh, roped in to be um, the guest editor, uh, or at least um, have ISIS represented with, um, at the newsletter by Philip. Um, he is um, extremely entrepreneurial and energetic, and he kind of twisted my arm into doing it, and after a few uh, tries, I we, we really enjoyed it, um, having um, some sort of um, Southeast Asian representation in the in the newsletter, and also to it, it's a wonderful platform uh, to kind of showcase the the work that we do um, at the research center over over there. Thank you, Lena. Um, would you like to introduce yourself and your institution? Yes, of course. Hello. Uh, so my name is Lena Scheen. I'm actually an old classmate of Paramita. <laughs> I did China studies in Leiden. And um, so I'm a specialist in actually Shanghai. I do urban studies, contemporary China. And I look especially at Shanghai in the last 20 years. And it's, it's enormous transformation 
Um, and I am working at NYU Shanghai, so New York University in Shanghai. And for the newsletter, I do the China Connections regional um, section. Thanks, Lena. Ilhong, would you like to go ahead? Well, um, hello. So I'm Ilhong, and I am an archaeologist based at Seoul National University Asia Center in Seoul, um, South Korea. So um, although my main area of research is actually Korea, because I am based um, at SNU Asia Center, my more recent research has come to focus on ancient networks, both land-based and maritime, that connected the Korean peninsula with the wider Asian world. So I focus on both um, trade ports and also on trade objects to look at how these um, networks were maintained and reproduced. Um, um, as for Seoul National University Asia Centre, the institute happens to be the only one in South Korea that covers all of, all of the regions of Asia. So a key aim has been to function as a global platform for Asian studies, connecting Asian studies researchers based in Korea and based in Asia, and also based in the world. And we've particularly aimed to facilitate exchange and cooperation and also information sharing. Thanks, Ilhong. Edwin um, and Kathy, um, you are a team for the Melbourne um, Institute. Can you tell us about your connection um, as scholars and also your institutions? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, Paramita. Uh, so I'm the convener of Indonesian Studies at the Asia Institute of the Faculty of Arts at the University of Melbourne. Um, my own research, teaching and engagement interests are in contemporary art, uh, media, culture, language and society in Asia with a specific focus on Indonesia. And I'm especially interested in themes around uh, socially engaged and environmental arts, uh, digital art, uh, cultural activism and participatory art and media, uh, media ecology and the creative industry, uh, urban space and the public sphere, and also globalization and local identity. So yeah, together with uh, Kathy, um, I'm representing uh, the Asia Institute. And, and just to give you an idea of, of our institute, it's one among five schools at the Faculty of Arts. Uh, so we also have a School of Languages and Linguistics, School of Cultural Communication, School of Historical and Philosophical Studies, School of Social and Political Sciences. Um, but our institute uh, hosts um, programs focusing on Asia. So we've got Arabic studies, Chinese studies, Indonesian studies, Japanese studies, Korean studies, uh, Asian studies, Islamic studies, gender studies, and translation studies. Um, and we also host the National Center for Contemporary Islamic Studies and the Center for Contemporary Chinese Studies. Um, all our, our programs are very interdisciplinary, uh, interdisciplinary in focus, uh, with teaching, research, and engagement interests ranging from Asian languages, linguistics, literature, culture, media, art, and history, to uh, Asian and Middle Eastern social, political, economic, and international relations studies. Um, and we also, uh, maybe uh, Kathy can, can say more about this, we also have our own publication, which is the Melbourne Asia Review, of which uh, Kathy is the editor. 
Thanks, Edwin. Um, I'm the I'm not a scholar, actually. I think the only person here. Um, I'm a non-practicing lawyer um, who has been a journalist for most of my career, uh, mainly at the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, the ABC, um, but also as Australia correspondent for the Washington DC-based National Public Radio, NPR News. I'm currently uh, the managing editor of Melbourne Asia Review, as Edwin said, um, which is published by the Asia Institute. Uh, and that's really how I've become involved um, with the newsletter. Melbourne Asia Review is a hybrid online journal magazine. Um, our articles are peer-reviewed and aimed at scholars, but also uh, government, business and civil society. So although quite different from the newsletter, there are some similarities. Thank you for your introductions. It's very interesting to finally also get to know um, all of your backgrounds and to see how these different backgrounds come together um, when you report on the regional news um, for our issues. Now, each of you connected with the newsletter in slightly different ways. Um, Terence already mentioned his contact with Philippe. Um, and I know that some of you were involved with IAS for quite a while before um, becoming our regional editors. So I'd love to know, how did you first get involved with our work at IAS? And I'll start with you, Lena, maybe, because I know that you've been at IAS for a while. Um, I was already hoping I could start. <laughs> no, actually, funny enough, and sometimes you have a person or an institute in life that just keeps coming back to your life. And IAS is definitely one of those institutes for me because was, um, <clears throat> um, when I was a master's student, I actually interned at IAS as the IAS newsletter editor. So, um, and that's how I got involved in the institute and I immediately kind of fell in love with it. At that time, it was still run also by the first director, um, Wim Stockhoff. And because of that connection, I actually kept on working there for a while as a fellow coordinator as well. And that's how I got interested really in uh, doing my master, but really into doing more research. And that's why I actually did a PhD in it, because it was the former director who said to me, like, uh, why don't you actually do a PhD? Maybe that's something for you. So it's really because of the IS, I ended up doing a PhD. And then uh, after doing my PhD, I actually did a postdoc fellowship at IS. And now I'm a regional editor for the IS newsletter. So I really have this long connection. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm very, I mean, I've always loved the place as an institute. And I mean, as a both working there, but also as a as a postdoc myself, and now, of course, working for the newsletter. But I do also think it's a really unique institute in how it really does an effort, not just, you know, investing in Asia studies, which is still something we actually have to fight for, but also being very present in Asia. So, you know, having the conferences, being really in Asia, and also um, the newsletter itself, it is very well distributed in Asia and at Asian institutions. We really have a presence there, not just, you know, being doing Asian studies, but actually with Asian scholars, Asian institutions. And like I said, like literally being physically in Asia, I think that's a very important thing. Of course, being myself at an institute, you know, an American institute, as I said, uh, that's located in Shanghai in China. I think that is a very important part of Asian studies. And I mean, I leave it like at this for now, but I think that is something if we have the time, I would say want to say more about that or maybe others also about that importance of doing Asia studies, not, you know, also really in Asia with Asian institution and of course, Asian scholars. Absolutely. And we'll definitely return to that point of 
of having these connections and then these branches outside of where we are located. Um, another person whom I know um, with a very long connection with AAS is Edwin. Um, would you like to tell us a little bit about your um, earlier connections with AAS and how that went? Thanks. Uh, yeah, it's a bit similar to, to Lena. Um, so I'm also an alumnus of uh, Universiteit Leiden, where I completed my undergraduate and postgraduate uh, degrees in literature and Indonesian studies. And yeah, same thing, one of the founders and the first director of IAS, uh, Professor Rip Stockholf, was one of our lectures in the Indonesian studies program. Um, then I migrated to Australia in 2004, um, but I returned to Leiden for my sabbatical in 2008 and also became a fellow with IAS. Um, the link, the specific link with the newsletter started with uh, a visit from your current director, uh, Philippe Pécon, to Australia in 2015. And um, at that point, our institute actually signed a, a memorandum of understanding with IAS for developing joint activities. Um, and I think the, the contribution to the newsletter, uh, our contribution is, is called News from Australia and the Pacific, um, is the most uh, important joint uh, activity. Um, and uh, at the very start, I, I started uh, editing this section with my colleague, uh, Associate Professor Anna Dragolovich, uh, who is based in Gender Studies at our Faculty of Arts. Ilhong, can you tell us a little bit about how you were connected to IS before becoming a regional editor? Well, in my case, actually, um, I'm not an Asian studies scholar. I'm an archaeologist based in Korea, but um, I joined um, SNU Asia Center in the autumn of 2017. And my first task was to take on the role of regional editor for the news from Northeast Asia section from another colleague who had moved on to greener pastures. Um, so the first issue that I became responsible for was the piece that came out in spring of 2018. And it, it has been, it was something that I had not done before, but it made me realize the um, breadth and scope of Asian studies as, as it has developed in the past decade or two decades. And it has been a very interesting experience for me. Great. Kathy, did you did you know about IAS before at all, or was it was your connection um, as editor the first introduction to the institute? That was the first introduction um, when Edwin um, when I found out Edwin was involved and uh, and he asked if um, I would like to be involved and I and I I, I did want to be involved. Um, since I'm involved in publishing on Asia and um, and he was already involved with the newsletter, we began to collaborate on it. But I think there are a lot of bigger synergies there um, between the Asia Institute and Melbourne Asia Review and IIAS because of obviously our focus on knowledge and study of Asia. Um, but also I think we have um, a sort of shared focus in reaching um, out beyond um, the scholarly community, reaching the scholarly community too, but beyond that. Um, and, and also, it was interesting what Lena said before, because um, I think Melbourne Asia Review, um, like the newsletter, um, sort of tries to locate itself and locate Australia um, in Asia. 
obviously Australia is is in geographically located in the Asian region, but uh, in uh, a significant way uh, in terms of its identity, I think still does not see itself as being part of Asia, despite the significant um, diaspora communities here. So part of um, what Melbourne Nature Review tries to do is bridge that gap between Australia and Asia. I love how you all indicate things that we've been working on also in the last couple of years, um, ways in which the newsletter has expanded to include other parts of the world, ways in which we're trying to connect to other areas, also to rethink Asian studies and to rethink how we understand Asia. And we'll turn to those issues in a minute. Let me first talk a little bit about um, our working process. So in a given issue, the region section includes submitted collections from your institutions based on a rotating schedule. As guest editors, you select and curate the articles such that by the time we at IAS receive them, they're already well-developed. Um, I'm curious to know, how do you go about curating your collections? In particular, how do you decide on a theme for a given issue? Terence, shall we start with you? Yeah, sure. So. Um, I go by topicality. I mean, what's what's current and what's um, unfolding. So over at ISIS, we have um, three regional programs. Um, and they look at politics, they look at the economics, and they look at social cultural issues. And in addition to these regional programs, and these issues are usually uh, cross-border, trans-border issues. And then we have five country study programs, um, Malaysia, Indonesia, um, Vietnam, Myanmar, and Thailand. And so these country study programs kind of look at the domestic politics of, of the, each country. And so how I go about choosing um, articles is that if, say, um, the, the, the most recent Thai elections uh, took place and we have uh, researchers who have been working on um, analyzing um, the outcomes of Thai elections and the voting patterns, I think, well, this is something that um, is really interesting and I think the European readers will be interested in. And then I will gather a few of them together and then kind of curate um, um, something around that, that issue, um, the, the topic of, of Thai elections. Or, for example, if, um, say, the Indonesian elections will be taking place uh, in February next year, and that will be a major um, project for us as well. And so I would think that um, our European audiences would be interested in understanding how votes have been mobilized, uh, whether or not social media has played a role in, in mobilizing the vote, uh, if political Islam has um, kind of triggered a certain type of responses to for, for certain candidates. These are issues that um, would be interesting. And, and I would um, kind of gather a few researchers together and um, talk about what um, would be interesting for a reader who may or may not have um, a good understanding of the Indonesian landscape. Uh, so making things as clear and, but, and simple, but not simplistic, um, so that uh, people can have a quick read and understand um, whatever they can in that short section that we provide. Yeah. Would you say you are responding to current issues in your collections or? Yes, definitely. Um, so when, when Philip first approached um, me to, to contribute to the, the newsletter, I was a bit um, hesitant because, I mean, I'm a big fan of the newsletter and I've been consuming it um, uh, for, for many years. So I'm pretty familiar with the kind of offerings of the newsletter and 
and it's very strong on history, um, culture, gender studies, um, uh, literary works and all that. But my institute deals with contemporary Southeast Asia and we deal with elections, we deal with uh, uh, religion and, and the way they, they, they intersect with um, um, politics. Uh, we deal with um, um, migration issues. We deal with um, uh, unfolding economic uh, issues as well. And so I was just wondering how it, how the contemporary um, Southeast Asia will fit into uh, a more literary kind of um, treatment of Southeast Asia, which the newsletter is really good at doing. But I think over the last few um, issues working with Philip and, and yourself, I think we've managed to find a nice niche to kind of place um, a contemporary um, perspective of, of the region, a, a small slice of Asia um, in the newsletter. So I think it's worked out pretty well. Indeed. Ilhong, can you tell us a little bit about your working process, your background in archaeology? Um, does that, how does that work when you look for articles and collections? How do you collect and solicit work? Well, as regional editor, I try to keep my identity as an archaeologist down to the minimum. And because um, at SNU Asia Centre, we have so many researchers you know, covering all regions and all disciplines, because we have six regional research centres and then eight thematic research programmes. And so what we do is we select the themes with the input of the researchers based at the Asia Centre. So usually during informal chats, we will talk about the most recent issue and then brainstorm about um, themes that have yet to be dealt with, but then which are quite very relevant to present day concerns. So for example, we have dealt with COVID-19 and we have dealt with Myanmar. And then what is really important is that we try to think of themes in which it is very important to provide the different perspectives coming out of the different countries of Northeast Asia. So we talk about experiences of the other in Northeast Asia, or we talk about the borderlands of Northeast Asia, or for example, Northeast Asia's engagements with the Middle East. And we try to allocate um, pieces to the different countries comprising um, Northeast Asia, and so the different perspectives can be presented to the wider public. Thank you. Lena, would you like to add to this? How do you go about curating your collection? Yeah, thank you. Well, just like Ilhong, first of all, I try to, you know, uh, not have my own preferences uh, because I really am in contemporary studies. And for the issue, so because we do the China connections, right, it's really about China in connection to the rest of the world. So we also have more historical kind of issues. But I think one of the main things, uh, so uh, one thing I forgot to say at the beginning is that uh, we have also the Center for Global Asia at NYU Shanghai. And that's actually the sorts of people from that center where um, we, we work on these issues. So we have postdocs. So we also really involve them uh, on to ask like what kind of themes they think might be a good idea. And I always collaborate actually with one of the postdocs so that also postdocs have, you know, an opportunity to do this type of work, but also like really collaboration with one of the postdocs. And then that postdoc is really, um, has a very big say in the theme and also in 
thinking of like, you know, who to invite. Um, so yeah, so as I also said before, I find it really important to stress sort of this idea of, you know, Asian studies being done in Asia. So that's actually even in the themes that we chose. So for example, we did have an issue on China studies, but then um, at the academies of, or Asian studies, I should say, at, at, at Chinese academies of social sciences, for example, but also African studies in China, so not only Asia. But so that is really a theme that, you know, like, because often we think of Asian studies from, of course, you know, from done in Europe or in the US, um, and but or same for African studies, right? So what kind of research is being done in Asia? So on Asian studies usually, but there's this one issue that was done on African studies. So it's not just, you know, themes in Asian studies being done in Asia, but it's also like the whole idea of like, uh, what kind of research is being done in Asia at the moment? So, for example, if there is an important conference at, uh, in Asia or if there are important institutions, we try to highlight uh, those. Um, so so that's kind of like, you know, where, where we really try to make that effort also when I invite um, people to contribute for a certain theme um, that I, I try to find as many people that are based in Asia. Um, and I do, I do think that, you know, as sort of simple as that may sound, it does give a really often new perspectives or other perspectives that are not enough heard, in my opinion. Um, for example, the most important, I think, still Asian Studies Conference at the moment is AAS, right, in, in, in the U.S. And I remember going there as an un, or as a grad student and at that time being one of the few, like, oh, you come all the way from Europe. Well, you know, there were quite a few people from Europe, but definitely not, um, you know, not enough people from the rest of the world. So I think, you know, kind of decentralizing Asian studies um, away from just Europe and the US, but in Africa, in, in Asia is so important. So yeah, so also kind of try to incorporate it in the themes. Um, but we've also done other, other, other topics like, you know, borders on Chinese maps. It's also very much about the relationship within Asia between countries. So for example, have done two issues uh, on India-China links. Uh, one was on artistic engagements between India and China. So there's uh, two, one issue on borderlands, one issue on borders on maps. So there's a lot of focus on also the relationship within uh, Asian countries. Edwin and Kathy, do these processes sound familiar to you or um, do you work very differently? Are there things that you do very differently from our other regional editors, do you think? Yeah, I think there, there's many similarities. I think in general, uh, our strategies are very mixed. Uh, so sometimes we put out a call uh, for contributions. Um, occasionally, people come to us with IDs. Um, but usually, we, we contact people, the same thing, based on uh, their contributions to recent events, uh, such as public seminars or conferences or uh, PhD research or postdoc research. And we try to have some variation in, in terms of uh, geography or thematic focus. Um, and we, with this, yeah, we keep our teaching and research and engage, engagement interests uh, of our language and, and culture programs in, in mind. Um, normally, we have at least one contributor from the Asian Institute or the Faculty of Arts or at least the University of Melbourne. But as our section is called News from Asia, from Australia and the Pacific, we also try to engage with with colleagues from other universities and, and other cities. Uh, for instance, we had one edition with all the contributors coming from uh, New Zealand. Um, 
however, this is yeah, this is becoming I think a little bit more challenging uh, considering people's workloads and also the institutional loyalties and obligations. Um, but I think also yeah, with with uh, having Kathy on board uh, as the editor of the Melbourne Asia Review, um, probably we will also look more into sharing some of our contributors and, and our content across the two platforms. Uh, so just to make it easier to select themes and authors. And also to extend uh, the reach of our articles across readerships. Um, so maybe yeah, also maybe Kathy can uh, also add something on on uh, the Melbourne Asia review uh, strategies for having themes and contributors. Yeah, I'll just say something brief because um, I've been involved in two editions only, not nearly as extensively as Edwin, but um, but they were on um, uh, media of religious morality in Indonesia and Asia and Asians in Australian politics and society. So uh, both those have been really about current um, issues, current affairs, essentially, um, which others have already spoken about. Um, and so an emphasis, the ones I've been involved with, have certainly had an emphasis on um, relevance to contemporary matters. You've all given us a, a, a brief glimpse into the types of themes and, and the types of articles you work with. Are there any particular collections that are especially memorable to you, both with regard to the people you've worked with maybe, or the particular uh, difficulties of a theme or the complexity of a subject? Um, or is there a theme you would like to highlight? Well, one theme that jumps out for me, um, only because it's something that is so uh, alien to what we do at, at ISIS, and it was um, um, art history in Southeast Asia. Um, this um, contribution came up from a series of uh, webinar lectures uh, over the COVID period uh, when travel was uh, restricted. And what we did was we invited um, art historians from around Southeast Asia to talk about um, um, art history um, in, in various civilizations, the Angkor civilization, the Malacca Sultanate, the Sri Vijaya, and um, they gave wonderful presentations and it was open to, to students from, from around the region as well. And so at the end of the series, we looked at the presentations and said, um, you know, it would be great if we could just uh, compile a few of them and um, see where it goes. And, mm -hmm. and we, had, we had the newsletter in mind, obviously. So we began to select um, um, a few pieces. Uh, I think we did one, we, we selected a piece on uh, Buddhist architecture, um, and then one on uh, mosque architecture, um, and and the Malacca Sultanate as well, and it was just fun. I mean, it wasn't work for me. It was just fun because um, it's it, it's so um, um, different from from the day to day grind that 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 I I go through, and so it was also a learning process. I mean, everything I did, I think I read was new to me. So the joy of um, um, learning came back to me again. And so, so yeah, that really stood out for me. And, and I, I would love to do it all over again. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree with the, the sort of um, the new topics that you encounter um, as you go through these collections, as you compile them, and the things that you learn um, about other sub-disciplines within the larger discipline of Asian studies. So that's definitely a pleasure to do. Um, anyone else with a particular collection that you feel you would like to highlight? Lena. 
Uh, yeah, I think the first issue I did, probably also because it was the first, but also it was on Islam in China. And, uh, well, as we all know, it's a sensitive topic, whether both in China and in Europe for very different reasons, of course. Um, but for me, that made it really extra interesting because also to kind of deal with those sensitivities, of course, in China, um, the whole issue with the Uyghurs, although at that time it wasn't as much in the news, of course, as it came later, but definitely already, of course, this is actually a problem that has been there for many, many centuries. So definitely already aware of the, of course, sensitivities in China. And then, of course, um, noticing how much still or in Europe immediately sort of associations with terrorism comes up and this very problematic, of course, um, you know, uh, associations that people immediately have when you talk about uh, the topic of just Islam and then uh, Islam in China. And I thought it was really interesting to do, but also so important to show, you know, how Islam in China, we literally called it from Muhammad to the Qing dynasty because it has such a long history, right? This kind of, and this is exactly also what the China connections kind of issue wants to do is show how, you know, we have had um, cultural connections um, throughout the centuries. And of course, you know, there has always been Muslims in China and it has a really long history and have a really important influence uh, had over the centuries in China on Chinese culture and so on. So that was one of the reasons why I really like doing that. And also we even included like one article that was on halal restaurants in Cairo to also show, you know, how up till today, these connections are so important and they go every single directions, whether it's, you know, uh, Muslims who have been in China for so much, so many centuries, or whether it's about, you know, uh, Chinese uh, Muslims going to other places in the world today, right? So it's it's like to show really, and I think, I think this type of topics um, are kind of like similar that, um, I think it was, was it Edwin or was saying like, or you're also, no, Terence just showed like how you did really also contemporary topics, of course, that are, you know, right now very important and in the news. So I think that that was one of the reasons why I really love doing that topic. And I also thought it was actually, sadly, very, very important to show again that, you know, these connections have always been there. It's a good point. Newsletter articles are generally short, um, comparatively short. Um, it's a place to talk about current issues, but it's also definitely a place to think critically about complex issues, however short or long the articles are. And each of us, especially from your different regions, um, are tackling some of these issues in your different types of collections. Um, I think that shortness, if I can say one thing yeah, about it, sure. I really kind of like that because the, I remember the first time I was asked to do this, I was like, how am I going to do? Because especially, I mean, news that are IS newsletter articles are already short, but for us, right, for for uh, for our particular section, it's particularly short. Um, and in the beginning, I was like, oh, that's impossible. But I actually really like it because I always say to the contributors, you should see it not as a way to really go into depth, right, on your topic, but to show just enough that people become curious and want to read more about your topic. So on the one hand, you can see that you can actually say a lot in that very short piece, and I think it's very good training for us scholars to be shorter and to come to the point, and also to have a really quick overview of what is interesting, exciting research being done on this particular topic at this moment, and then you can look up the people, you know, and see their project and, and, and go more in depth. But 
because it's so short, I noticed for myself that I also read, of course, the other contributions and I read contributions that usually wouldn't be, you know, like not necessarily be attracted to the topic or it's very field, far of my own field. But because it's so short, I'm like, well, let's just have a quick look, you know, because uh, if it were long articles, you probably wouldn't even read it if it's so far from your or from your topic or you're not immediately in, attracted by it. So I, I really like that because actually that's how I, you know, got to a lot of research that's further away from my own research, but, you know, um, yeah, got me really interested in, in new topics. So I actually like that. And I never thought that when I was first asked that I would like that, but I think that's a, and it's also quite unique. There are very few, I would say, publications out there that dare to do that, to have these very, very brief articles, but that are just enough to really show what's out there, what kind of research is being done, um, you know, and give this very quick overview of like all the, you know, or, or, or a lot of the different kind of perspectives on one particular topic. So yeah, that, that's one part of the, of the whole ICE newsletter, what I actually really appreciate about it. Yeah, these are all very valuable points. I mean, short articles lead into uh, or generate enthusiasm or create interest. Um, they're also a way of bringing back topics sometimes, topics that we forget about once they're out of the other media or out of news and out of the news in general. Um, so they offer opportunities that longer articles don't. And that's, that's definitely a valuable point. We've talked a little bit about how, as editors, we sometimes make our background less important, make our own background and training less important. So for instance, if you're an archaeologist or if you're working on contemporary China, when you look for articles for your collections, um, that doesn't necessarily play a very important part. But beyond thematic connections, um, are there other ways in which this work, your work as regional editors for the newsletter, um, fits into your other academic work? Um, how do you see yourselves as both scholars and academics? Um, you've talked a little bit about your, your institution's missions as well. Um, how do you place yourselves as editors within those different areas of which you are part? Um, Edwin and Kathy, maybe you would like to start. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, when it comes to this, this connection with IAS and the newsletter, um, first of all, there's the personal connection, as, as mentioned, uh, because of my family background, education background in the Netherlands. So I think this partnership is, is a really nice way of staying in touch, first of all, and, and sharing experiences and knowledge with my colleagues in, in Dutch academia. And um, what I really appreciate about the IAS and also the newsletter is uh, the effort to, to explore and showcase, although it's, it's short, but it's also in-depth. Uh, at the same time, um, this really this intellectual and cultural richness of, of Asia, as well as the, the contributions that the study of Asian society and thought can make to other disciplines. Um, and uh, in addition, then uh, is this, this really vast network and, and other activities as well, such as the ICAS conferences, um, through which IAS helps establishing and also sustaining conversation uh, between academics from different parts of the world, uh, between different disciplines. Um, but I think also, as, as Kathy mentioned, also in the form of dialogue between academics and, and, and others, uh, including activists or artists or NGOs or governments and, and, and communities. Um, and I, I think um, especially also, it's something that we haven't been involved in in, in our institute that much. But I think uh, the current effort to highlight Asian studies in, in Africa, for instance, and to facilitate connections between 
scholars based in Africa and other parts of the world uh, can be you know, very, very productive. Um, and I think also, yeah, to come back to something that uh, Terence mentioned, uh, uh, in, in general, I think the newsletter represents an approach that is very much rooted in the humanities with a, a very strong focus on interpersonal contact and conversation, uh, what it means to be human from Asian perspectives, um, which is represented in, in the selection of themes and discourses and also the images. I think the images, the visuals are also really important. And I think this can bring uh, Asian and Asianness very much alive. Um, it can create a sense of, of, of direct contact or intimacy with the readers. And I think it's especially important because this has become rather rare in, in academic uh, life and also in, in politics and the media, at least, you know, in, in Australia, uh, where these connections with Asia are predominantly discussed uh, and interpreted in, in terms of value, value for business or value for uh, security in the region, uh, international relations, or very, you know, very strategic purposes. Um, but yeah, what I personally always try to do is also to bring uh, a pile of copies to my classes in uh, Asian studies and Indonesian studies. Uh, to really share the, the richness of these, these uh, human and humanities dimensions and area studies to my students. So, um, yeah, I think that's been very valuable for me personally. Yeah, I really agree with you, Ed, Edwin. There's such a wide variety of topics that are covered in the newsletter that go so far beyond, yeah, you know, um, international relations or security. Um, I, just quickly, I... Um, Really appreciate uh, the interest in Asia from a publication based in Europe. Um, it probably doesn't seem particularly special, I don't know, to to you guys, perhaps. Um, but there's not that much of that in Australia. There's a lot from the US, but not from Europe. And more generally, I'd like to echo some of the sentiments that have already been voiced in terms of um, I find this kind of publishing super fun. I mean, it's kind of what I've done in my whole career, but um, but it's really rewarding to publish this kind of accessible analysis, I find. And I think it's the kind of publish the publishing that can have real impact because people working in government, business, um, you know, civil society, um, and scholars in other areas, um, perhaps the proverbial rocket scientist or brain surgeon, um, can understand this kind of publishing. Um, and as Lena said, when it's about topics such as Islam and the problematic way um, it's viewed so negatively, um, I think it can, um, I hope anyway, it can result in um, better understanding. Yeah, I think if you want to be a scholar who who caters to a purely um, scholarly audience, and that's fine. I mean, you can continue writing your 10,000, 20,000 word articles, um, and, that's, and that's great. But if you want to be a scholar that kind of puts your work out there in the public sphere to kind of shape uh, public discourse, uh, shape debate, or at least bring some sort of enlightenment to, to the general public, uh, I think having some sort of editorial background helps. And this is where the newsletter has been so useful for me. Um, and it goes back to what Lena and, and Kathy have been saying. Um, it's important to know how to write um, short pieces uh, because it's a completely different style altogether. Um, you have to, before you even start, your ideas have to be really crystallized. You have to know what your points are, you have to know what you want to hit, bang, 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 and then your conclusion and sharp and sweet. 
And, and that's how you engage um, the reader who will not normally pick up your piece of work um, if it's found in a journal or on a bookshelf in the library somewhere. And so I, I always tell my researchers, I mean, it's great if you want to cater to a um, scholarly audience. That's fine. That's completely legit. But you also need to, to speak to other audiences. And, and for a research center like ours, um, policymakers and, and um, businesses, business communities and international organizations, these are important audiences for us as well. And so learning to write in a crisp, uh, short, um, snappy manner um, is very important because it also uh, reveals the quality of your argument. Um, you cannot hide behind jargon. You cannot hide behind long passages and theory and all that. I mean, your your arguments are just stripped bare and, and you stand or fall um, 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 accordingly. And so I think writing short pieces and learning to edit them has been very useful for, for me personally as a, as a researcher and a scholar. So, yeah. These are all very good points, right, to write effectively um, to be able to write in, in different platforms under different circumstances and different contexts is, is what we are all trained to do but need to learn a bit more as well. Also to connect um, not just within academia but outside academia to the other kinds of audiences that we want to reach as well. Ilhong, you wanted to add something to this? Yes, actually, if I could add another angle to this, I don't know if this is relevant to the other um, editors, is that as I mentioned earlier, uh, one of the um, important editorial stances has been to provide a platform where the voices of the researchers from all of Asia could be equally represented. And so what we have tried to do is to find the best contributors, regardless of their English capabilities. And if needed, um, SNU Asia Centre translates their pieces into English. And so we have um, we have always um, regarded this um role of the news from Northeast Asia to disseminate work that in other cases would not have been made known to the wider English-speaking um, Asian studies community. And so um, this is something that we've tried to do. And actually, because the pieces of short are short, it is possible to translate this because had it been longer, our budget or our time schedule would not have allowed that. But the shortness of the um, con contributions allows us to take on this role of translator and to provide a wider range of um, works. So I think that's really important. Let's take a couple of minutes to talk a little bit about um, the region section um, in the newsletter. As you know, you are contributing to one of many sections in the newsletter, but one that was designed in particular to explore how Asian studies as an academic field, but also Asia as an object of research, gets implemented and imagined differently in different geographical, disciplinary, and political contexts. For example, what Asia signifies and evokes in Singapore is likely different from what it means in Melbourne or Seoul, or what it means here in the Netherlands. Um, it is a broad question, but how do your institutions delineate and approach the study of Asia. Lena, should we start with you? Yeah, it is a it is a difficult question, of course. And I it is actually it comes really to the core what I appreciate so much about the IS and its newsletter. And I mean I 
could only echo also everything that has been said before. And I think it 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 is not a coincidence that the you know the the five editors that are here now um, we share so much on our views because these are so important points. And I also again to to your question. Um, come back actually to what Ilhun was saying about language. Um, I think this is a really important point that I also want to stress um, because these are all these kind of um, aspects where you can see how much Asian studies is still colonized, right? And I mean, I know it's all a buzzword, but like interdisciplinary research and decolonization, but these are, of course, inter uh, very important things that we say often we do, but we don't really do, right? So it comes actually in language itself, right? When we talk about the Far East, for example, which, you know, it's only the Far East to someone who is in Europe. Um, you know, what do we what do we view as Asia? Which countries do we include? You know, do we look at it politically? Um, you know, Iran, of course, is very often, I still see it being, you know, called uh, Middle East or, you know, uh, even worse, as if, of course, it's when it's called Arabic, but you, you would be surprised how often, even within academia, um, you could see that, that these are actually still contested topics. Or, um, But also, for example, Tibet. Is Tibet part of East Asia because it's politically part of China? Or is it part of South Asia because it's culturally very close and religiously very close to places like India? Um, so so these topics, that is one of the interesting things, right? When we talk about Asia, what are we actually talking about? But it also really becomes about who is talking um, and who's doing the research and where are we doing the research. So, yeah, of course, as an institute, again, that is based in China, but it's an American institute. We're actually half American, half Chinese, where, of course, in our institute itself, we're constantly confronted with these questions. And they're not easily answered. Right. There's a reason also for why this has um, why the Asian studies grew the way it became because, for example, when we say like, well, we want to have more contributions from within, let's say, because that's my field, you know, from China, we want to have more research from China. Um, that sounds very simple, but then you, you know, one is language, like you was saying, like a lot of people wouldn't be able to write in English. So um, we do the same. We also translate uh, Chinese uh, pieces that, you know, into English and because, again, because the short pieces that is indeed possible. But another is still also academic, you know, jargon, as <laughs> Terence was saying, um, you know, if you don't know the jargon, you're being taken less seriously as a scholar within the field. That's just a fact. Um, if you come from a Chinese institution, there is an assumption it must have been censored or it must have been, you know, which sometimes is true, sometimes is not true. And sometimes is also true for people from institutions at other places that are censored for other reasons, right? Or where politics play a certain role. Or So um, as much as we, you know, like, I'm, I'm sure that most people in Asian studies all over the world would agree on we need to have more interdisciplinary research. We need to have more collaborations with scholars all over the world. We need to have, you know, not just having Asian scholars coming to Europe and the U.S., but also, and, and African scholars, of course, it's a very important part that the uh, dais is also playing a really important role. Of course, scholars from all over the world. Um, you know, going to American institutions or European institutions, we also need, you know, people from all places coming to Asian institutions. And as much as we, I think most of us agree on that, uh, in practice, it's still very, very hard. It's hard to be taken seriously as a scholar who comes from a different tradition than 
um, a Anglo-Saxon or, or again, European-American institution, because, you know, you might use different, um, it's not just language, but different theories, different, different educational training. Um, so I think that's why these collaboration, and that's for me what it all comes back to, it's genuine collaborations, genuine collaborations where you really um, keep an open mind on maybe a different approach that um, we at the first, and now I talk as a we as someone who's been trained in Europe, um, at the first sight would say like, well, you know, is this really the quality we're looking for? Well, what is it that makes you think that it isn't? Is it really because it isn't or is it because maybe the language skills, skills you know, English language skills aren't um, as, as, as high? Or is it because uh, this scholar is using a very different approach or methodology than you're than we're used to. And I think again, and I fully include myself with it, of course, because we're all a product of um where we came from, it is very hard to break through those barriers. And and that is why I think it's really crucially important um if we do want to have a genuine diverse approaches and diverse, you know, really have different ways of looking at a certain topic. Um, we need to break those barriers. And for that, it's so important that we have scholars from all over the world, institutions from all over the world, um, and languages. So also another thing of the IS that I really appreciate is that they really support scholarship in different languages. That's another very important, extremely important. It's not just symbolic. It, it is extremely important to get new because language is more than just right a tool. I mean, writing on a certain topic in a different language makes the the research fundamentally different so it is so important that you know um we have all these these very different price perspectives in a very genuinely uh diverse way being heard absolutely um kathy and edwin you earlier made an interesting remark when you said that um your contributions to the newsletter place australia in asia firmly place australia in asia um so i'd love to hear what you think about your approach to the study of Asia and how that how that works for you, especially for you, Kathy, since your background is not necessarily um, as an Asia scholar per se. Um, how do you feel about your collections and, and your approach to Asia um, in your contribution? Um, well, I was going to say Edwin should answer the question because he's a scholar, but um, I guess the, the contribu contributions that Edwin and I have worked on together um, have largely been voices from Asia or Australia on Asia, um, even if some are located in Australia. I think, would you say that that's true, Edwin? They're, they're voices from Asia, but some of them have been in, in Australia. And I know it's not as simple as just sort of um, publishing voices from Asia, but um, I think it does help problematise what, you know, Asia inverted commas is, because then it becomes something that's not necessarily located somewhere else. It's uh, within sort of inverted commas non-Asian nations um, and becoming or already is embedded in another inverted commas non-Asian cultures. Um, so I find I, I, that that's what I find most interesting about um, the collaborations we've worked on. You know, for example, the the the, um, the one we did on um, Asians in Australia. It's this really complicated notion of what's Asia, what's Australia, what, who are who are Asian Australians. 
Um, yeah, if, if uh, I may add, yeah, I think um, there's the institutional context, uh, but there's also, of course, the, the geography and the, the social and, and, and political context. Um, and uh, yeah, of course, there is this, this closeness and to some extent familiarity between uh, Australia and Asia, uh, especially through migrant communities uh, in, in, in Australia and especially in a place like Melbourne. Um, and as quite, also quite interestingly, I think uh, in our institute, actually, uh, I think among the staff, uh, Australians are actually in the minority. Uh, so it's really interesting to see how colleagues uh, bring their educational background, their life experiences, professional experiences, uh, and also the language that we talked about uh, before, all into this, this mix, uh, which is very rewarding. Uh, we can learn a lot from each other. But at the same time, yeah, even even within uh, our faculty, I suppose, and even uh, and definitely within the broad academic world, um, I think there's still some some prejudice or misunderstanding about Asian studies or area studies as well, um, as if it's solely defined by geography or language or colonial or Cold War legacy, um, or even worse, that it's not you know a, a true discipline in its own right. Um, and also, I think when it comes to the discourse that is being used in Australia to, um, you know, to sell Indonesian studies to students, for instance, um, um, some of this discourse is also guided by um, the idea that it's an easy, easy language to learn. But I think, yeah, myself and also my colleagues uh, always take on this challenge um, by arguing that, first of all, that Asian and Indonesian studies is definitely a discipline. Uh, and not only that, um, but it's also a very complex and difficult, but especially therefore rewarding one. Uh, it's rewarding not because it's easy, but because it's difficult, because it's complex and therefore interesting. Um, so I think, yeah, and the uh, maybe this, you know, this this issue or the, the source of misunderstanding is definitely not the lack of, of disciplinarity, but more the very fluid and never fixed and always changing. Uh, uh, by definition, intersectional uh, nature of it. Um, so in the end, I think, yeah, it's really not about delineating the boundaries of, of a continent or states or cultures or languages and societies, but it's really about this multi-layeredness, uh, about letting different types of knowledge uh, speak through each other and then also transform each other, uh, which is really, you know, it's hard labor, it's tough labor, um, because it yeah it does require... Uh, skills in different types of knowledge uh, and language is a very uh, essential one in, in, in all of this uh, but i think what's really fascinating about uh, our field is that uh, for instance through language we can have access to um, society through the study of society uh, we can learn about politics uh, with politics we can approach religion and through religion we can analyze gender um, so with this, yeah, the, the methods and the outcomes are, are, are never fixed, um, but the opportunities um, for conversation and learning are, are ongoing um, and really endless and, and very rewarding uh, for me personally um, as well. Great points. Ilhong, I have the same question for you, but perhaps would like you to focus on, on what you would say is the most important value of having these different views and perspectives on Asia in our journal? Um, I think I could maybe answer that question in relation to a huge um, research project that is taking place at SNU Asia Center right now. So, and 
In about around 2020, the Asia Center received a huge grant from the Korean government to explore the concept of mega Asia. And so, and this is for seven years, and we are currently in year four, and I am part of this research group. And basically, what we have been doing is to propose the need to adopt Asia itself as the unit of analysis, because if we do so, then this will allow previously unrecognized indirect connections between distant regions and countries within Asia to be explored. So, for example, between the Korean Peninsula and um, the Indian subcontinent. Because if we just look at bilateral or unilateral relationships between the two countries, there is very little that can be said in terms of connections in the past. But if we look at Asia itself as the unit of analysis, we can then focus on the indirect network links. And that shows how Asia was very, very connected in the past. And that gives us a basis to talk about how Asia can be connected in the present. And I think it is important because if I look at the different contributions from the different um, newsletters, you see patterns that appear that can be recognized in other regions. And that, I think, is a very important um, aspect of looking at the different regions and the research coming out of the different regions of Asia together in this um, the newsletter, the region section. Do you agree, Terence? Do you feel that that is the most important point? Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely think so. Um, just to go back to your your really big question on on how we imagine Asia, and I completely agree. I mean, um, how we imagine Asia really depends on where we are, where we are located, and even for. Um, an institute like mine, uh, where we look only at Southeast Asia, uh, even even Southeast Asia is no less problematic in its imagination, right? Um, we have people who interchange Southeast Asia with ASEAN. Um, um, it's a ten ten uh, member um, ten member association. Um, it's probably going to increase next year to eleven with uh, inclusion of Timor uh, Leste. Um, and so, even even a, a sub-region within um, Asia, um, it's no less um, problematic. And to make matters worse, there there is a strategic prioritization going on in terms of what we study and how we study it. Uh, for my institute, um, I talked about five countries that we look at very closely. And that is uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, Thailand, and uh, Myanmar. And that's purely for strategic purposes because um, they are important to, to us, they are important to Singapore, they are important in terms of networking. And, and it's also determined by um, uh, limitations in terms of funding as, as well. So I think how we imagine um, a region depends not just on the histories um, and and the location you're in, but also um, harsh realities like funds and and what policymakers deem to be important. Um, So, I mean, in area studies in the heyday, in the 80s and 70s, we saw great um, investment in, say, Indonesian studies, and, and American universities were really big on Southeast Asian studies. And I think more recently, that has, the funding for, for these um, um, studies have kind of dried up. So 
I think there's this waxing and waning in terms of interest. Um, and it is really important for us as practitioners and as students and scholars of Asia and Southeast Asia um, to kind of fly the flag um, and, and keep things going um, and, 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 and try and um, uh, convince the world or, or our funders that uh, what we are doing is important. And, and not just to say it's important, but to show why it's important. We hope that these kinds of initiatives, the regional cages, the newsletter, um, create a larger Asian studies community across the world. Do you think that that's the case? And if so, what do you think is the value of that sort of ongoing collaboration as opposed to, say, occasional conference meetings? Ilho. Well, I suppose um, that's a quite a difficult question to find an answer to, but I suppose the important thing would be it is um, it makes things easier to continue the discourse because if it's you know a one-off conference that takes place every year, you have really, really intensive chats, usually over some drinks, and then a lot of that is just left there at the conference venue and you come back and you do try to maintain links. But it's just, it is quite difficult, but if you have a kind of continued, how do you say, workshop program, I think something like that. It makes it easier to continue the discourse and then we can build up from what has been said in the previous section. I think it makes things much more productive. Yeah, if I can add to that, I of course I, I agree very much with that. I think the main difference is also a conference is more like hearing each other's research, hearing what others are doing. Well, here it's really about collaborating. So I think there's this huge difference of what is also important that we know of what is being done outside of our own little bubble, so to speak, but also on genuine collaborations again and comparative research. So uh, I think these initiatives like the newsletter and also our <laughs> modest contributions to that, I think it leads also to collaborative research, at least that's what we hope, of course, and we show, of course, also collaborative research. So I think it's it's, it's extremely important to sort of raise awareness of, um, you know, one step is read outside of your first, you know, general, the, the work that we already know, the work that we, um, you know, if you're, a, for example, a young scholar, you know, you're the work that you've been um, handed out by the the place where you studied or or your your you know your supervisors while you do your PhD and the people that you know and the people that you meet at a conference but then also look for more outside of that and again that's also by if you know the language you know reading research written in other languages but the second step is really reaching out to researchers in different places different institutions again maybe writing in other languages and uh, initiated collaborations because doing research together is very different from only um, exchanging what we are individually doing, right? One is a conversation and the other is where you genuinely have to apply maybe that other approach or at least, you know, bring those two approaches into conversation within a research project. So I think that's why this is really crucial and important. We all have the experience of, of living in and working in bubbles. Um, so in that sense, you're both correct. In addition to moving out of our own bubble and creating this 
a sort of platform for collaboration. It's, of course, also another aspect of the newsletter is, of course, also that it is widely read. So beyond um, our own communities, um, this is a way to reach out to the general reader interested in Asian studies or thinking about Asia, um, to talk to them about current topics, to invite them to share their ideas with us. So in that sense, we are definitely reaching out of, of several bubbles into a wider um, world. Um, would you like to comment, um, Edwin and Kathy, maybe? Yeah, I think it really helps with with creating a home, uh, a home for Asian studies. Um, so where we really can get to know each other, um, to get to know people with, you know, commitment to the field of studies um, and to develop these collaborative and, and, and ongoing initiatives that is not possible just with the conference. Um, and also, uh, I, I think also what uh, Lina referred to, uh, to facilitate, you know, some sort of intergenerational exchange as well, uh, thinking about new generations of, of, of students. And I think especially with that, yeah, it's, it's really important to, to treasure and, and, and nurture a community like this. Um, because, um, yeah, definitely also takes more than one generation, you know, to build it. Um, so yeah, any anything uh, that we can do in addition uh, to you know to the region uh, would be great, and uh, I'm sure you know uh, most of us will have some 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 ideas about that as well. Um, but yeah, maybe we can come back to that later. I suppose this leads us to our final question: um, our ideas for the future, possibilities for the future. Um, Perhaps you could reflect a little bit on your collaboration with IAS so far and tell us what you think about um, the future of our collaboration. Are there possibilities for the partnership you'd like to explore moving forward, um, particular ideas you'd like to discuss? Um, Terence, shall we start with you? It's been a very beneficial um, relationship and collaboration uh, on my part, uh, well, at least for me, because um, um, the kind of work that I, I deal with is contemporary and, and topical and being able to consume uh, a humanities rooted um, literature and, and, and perspective on, on Asia um, kind of broadens your horizon. Um, I think you are in great danger of working yourself into a silo if you don't read beyond your immediate uh, work scope. And I think Working with um, the newsletter has been important and, and it's been very helpful in keeping that equilibrium um, up there. So that's, that's been wonderful. The other forms of collaboration, I guess, I mean, I'm just thinking, um, I don't have a great imagination. So I'm just thinking of little platforms here and there. I mean, perhaps having podcasts um, instead of having people um, contribute um, through the written word, Perhaps you can have guest scholars coming together, something like, like this, and have a topic down on the table. And then um, everyone can attack the topic and discuss um, um, the issue. And um, I think that might be a bit more dynamic and allowing your readership to, to pop in with questions as well. Um, that would make um, the, the event more interactive. So I think that, that could be one way of um, engaging with scholars uh, from the region as well as um, um, issues on, on, on Asia, yeah. With our current platforms, there are definitely 
various possibilities in with which we can use to engage um, with our audience. So that's definitely a good idea. Um, uh, well, one thing I was thinking about, because we also earlier was mentioned about how, of course, different institutions have very different access to resources. Um, every, you know, whether it's within a country or within the institution, you have different kind of limitations. And I think one thing that we could do a lot more in academia in general, and I don't know if IS could play a, a role in that, but is the sharing of resources as well. So yes, certain places have more resources, some type of resources, but other places have other resources. Um, some places it's easier to, for example, write about a certain topic than in other places, or depends on where it's published or the language it's in published. So I think this sort of sharing of not just knowledge and working together, but really sharing of resources, of being more aware of it. What What is it that our institution has to offer that maybe other institutions don't? And what is it that other institutions have to offer that we don't have? And how could we kind of share that in a certain way? So I think the sharing of resources becomes extremely important, again, if we want to have more collaborations with places all over the world because that is of course um, we see still of course an extremely unequal distribution of resources when it comes to research and also of course Asian studies. Definitely a collaboration on different levels um, is what we would definitely aim for as well absolutely. Um, Bill Hong would you like to add to potential possibilities or ideas for future collaboration? Um, well I should say that um, during the summer, the um, organization of SMU Asia Center is going through a bit of um, reshuffling. So I cannot say, um, provide any concrete plans for collaboration in the future, but I have been told that I can say that in 2024, we are hoping to organize and host a very, very large scale Asian studies conference at SMU AC. And so, um, when things become a bit more concrete, um, it would be very interesting to find ways to collaborate um, regarding the conference with IIAS or, and again with our um, partner institutions. So um, yes, and I'm sure in the future we can talk about more <laughs> concrete ways to um, develop that collaboration. Sure, it's yes. definitely a good idea to also have opportunities to meet in person um, and to meet with our networks in person. Um, any other possibilities, Edwin and Kathy? What have you been thinking of as potential future opportunities? Yeah, I think uh, it would be really nice if uh, among our four or five institutions um, there can be uh, collaboration in, in, in other forms as well, uh, and, and especially you know considering different approaches and different resources uh, in connection to Asian studies. Um, I mean, in, 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 in practical terms, yeah, it can be a conference or it can be in the form of uh, short staff visits or shared public lecture series um, or maybe student exchange uh, or shared in-country subjects or internships. Um, and also, uh, I think uh, what, what's really uh, interesting, what could be interesting, um, Interactions not only, uh, as mentioned before, uh, not only between academics, but also uh, with with other individuals and communities from uh, different parts of, of Asia, um, including activists and artists and NGOs, um, community groups. I mean, I think that would be uh, 
something that could be really exciting or very valuable uh, to us. Yeah. Yeah, um, I don't have much to add to that really, except um, that I would like to see uh, universities uh, sharing their research um, and their analysis and knowledge um, in in this kind of publishing um, that that IAS does and um, and that the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne does and that NUS does a lot of actually, Terence, I think, um, the, uh, specifically where you're based on Southeast Asia, but also your colleagues in uh, the Institute of South Asian Studies do a lot of this kind of publishing. Um, but um, I'm not sure that it's very widespread and perhaps why there's, that's why this group is, is reasonably small. I mean, I'm not sure that much of it is done in the US, for example, which is very surprising to me. Um, but I think it's really important to, to use a bit of a cliche that universities uh, come out come down from the ivory tower as much as they can and uh, make their research and analysis, especially on current issues, um, more available to white public. That is a very good point, Cathy, and that's also what the regional pages and the newsletter in general um, aim to do, of course. So thank you very much um, for talking to us today, for coming in today. Um, many thanks to all of you, um, to Terence, um, Lena, Ilhong, Edwin and Kathy. It was wonderful to finally meet you, to talk to all of you, and I look forward to our continued collaboration on the regional pages of the newsletter. Thank you. Thanks, Parameter. Thank you so much, Parameter. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Very nice to meet everyone. Yeah. Ilhong Ko, Terence Chong, Lena Schein, Edwin Uriens, and Kathy Harper. Thank you for listening to the channel. Please subscribe to receive all future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the International Institute for Asian Studies, a globally oriented institution based at Leiden University in the Netherlands. We are dedicated to fostering an integrated, multidisciplinary understanding of Asia and beyond and we'd love for you to get involved. For more information on our conferences, webinars, publications, and fellowship program, please visit ias.asia. That's I-I-A-S dot A-S-I-A. See you next time.